even if it wasn't the plan from the beginning to enlarge in this way, right? It's accidental, but what does this mean for Moldova, Ukraine and the Western Balkans? Does it mean that they extend the chance to join the EU despite not meeting a lot of the criteria that the European Union itself has set? And that's possible because it's a political decision in the end. But on the other hand, the situation on the ground in these countries, the European Union itself and the process of enlargement itself is not the same. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you're listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vevoda. I am a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences here in Vienna, where I lead the Europe's Futures program. So welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen along as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. In this podcast, I have the pleasure and honor to be talking to Veronica Angel. She's a visiting fellow currently at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence. Veronica is also an adjunct professor at John Hopkins University, the School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna. She has had many fellowships in the United States and Europe. She is widely published in numerous academic journals. Veronica also worked as a foreign policy advisor for the Romanian presidential administration and the Romanian state. There's much more, of course, to say about Veronica, but we'll go straight into the affairs that we will discuss today. I'm proud to say that she is a Europe's Futures Fellow this year with us, and she is working on the question of European Union enlargement. We'll delve more specifically into the issues that she is looking at, but let me start with a, with a general question, Veronica. And again, pleased very much to have you with us. What is the EU enlargement today, given the background and the shadow we're living in of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Hi, Ivan, and thank you so much for the invitation. Well, this is a very interesting start, because if we start with the Russia-Ukraine war, then we will overlook a very long history of EU enlargement. And perhaps we can go back to, to its history as well, so we can make sure we're all on the same page. But it's it's also quite interesting because right now, under the effects of the Russia-Ukraine war, we can see the EU reacting in a, in a familiar sequence of incomplete decision-making, if I can be as, as direct as possible. Because just like the process of enlargement towards the post-communist Central and Eastern Europe, the inclusion of more states within EU borders is not necessarily a preferred EU working agenda. So it's very interesting to look at how the EU reacted now. The war appears to have revived this long-stalled enlargement process for not only the Western Balkans, but also Ukraine and Moldova. And it's not really clear what is the direction of travel here, right? We can end up seeing something similar to what we've seen in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, where the 
design was not necessarily made to include more states at the beginning in the 90s, or we can see a complete failure of, of enlargement. And these are the extremes, right? So between these two extremes, there are all these outcomes that can that can end up being a very, very different from each other, right? So it's very hard to to identify what the EU is trying to do right now with its enlargement policy. And well, together with a colleague very recently, Jelena Jancic, who is a Western Balkan expert, we've been looking into this. And in fact, we've found evidence that enlargement is primarily understood as a security building mechanism that has actually implications for the way European integration moves forward. It's not exactly an obstacle course. It's more of a tool that the EU has in its toolbox to secure its borders. We need to remind people that it is more or less exactly 20 years ago that the European Union under the Greek presidency in Thessaloniki in June 2003 promised the Western Balkans that they would become members, of course, provided they fulfilled all the requirements. And in the famous words of Romano Prodi, without ifs and buts. 20 years later, of course, we haven't moved very far. One country did join, Croatia, uh, back in July 2013, 10 years ago. And also, we must remind that the European Union has never formally reneged on full membership. In all the statements over all these years, it has repeated in one way or another. And also that these countries that are candidates now including Ukraine and Moldova since last year, all have as their strategic goal full membership. So it's under, again, that umbrella of political decision-making about unifying Europe that the issues that you so rightly raise are, are happening. One of our colleagues, former Deputy Prime Minister of North Macedonia, just the other day did a podcast where he talked about, not in dissimilar terms, about the EU enlargement as a crisis management tool. Now, you know, we can bicker about the words or the substance of this, but as this commission of Ursula von der Leyen since 2019 declared itself geopolitical, and we will go back to, to the different types of enlargement, and I really want to hear your opinion about how you see those differences. But just on, on that fact of the geopolitical commission, do you think that's pure rhetorics or is there more to it than that? I do strongly believe, looking at all the documents that are coming out of the EU, but also the statements that we keep reading, that there is an important rhetoric reality gap, right? So just going back to what you were saying about this being political, to actually be given EU membership, the Western Balkans would need the EU to adopt a sort of strategy of enlargement at all costs. So overlook all the problems that you could identify or the challenges and consider that the costs of bringing these countries in would be lower than the benefits. And the difference is that this time around, compared to what the EU did in Central and Eastern Europe, it's not that convinced that those costs are worth paying. The people you would talk to within the EU, but also in other, in other levels of decision-making, seem to think that the costs would be too high. For the EU, for the member states, 
um, and for the local authorities in candidate states that are charged with capacity building. So this becomes evident when you look at some of the alternative options that have been floating around that have coming from EU member states, such as the French Initiative for the European Political Community or that 2022 Austrian non-paper on gradual integration. So enlargement, again, understood in traditional terms, right, having a, a seat at the table does not seem to rank very highly on a unified EU policy agenda when you look at implementation. And you can see this also in the way that the Western Balkans, for example, are being referred to in different documents that are coming out of the EU. So on the one hand, you rightly point to the this Western Balkan um, agenda, right? That the latest was in 2022 in December, the EU Western Balkans summit that had this great new idea of, of new enlargement methodology, Right. And this goes back to how the EU considered the prospect of the region's accession to be in the union's own political and security and economic interest. And in this document, EU enlargement towards the Western Balkans is defined as an investment in EU security. But not all documents point in the same direction, because you also have this new strategy, strategic compass for security and defense that defines Western Balkans as outside partners with whom tailored partnerships should be developed alongside our eastern and southern neighborhood or Africa or Asia or Latin America. So the question here is, can the EU simultaneously build a security strategy around having the Western Balkans in and having them out at the same time? So probably that points to a lack of a vision to a certain extent. And yes, to go back to your question, there is an, an important rhetoric gap reality. So let's go back to, to the history, if we can call it that, and compare the initial enlargement after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where, of course, there was a, a justified euphoria of the end of communism, of the end of a divided Europe, and of the need to rectify wrongs that happened in the Cold War, or rather at Yalta and Potsdam, where basically the Soviet Union was able to take half of Europe on the basis of various historical facts of the end of uh, the Second World War. So how would, you, how would you compare those first enlargements to the issue at hand, the challenge of this enlargement, and what would be the main differences that you see? So looking back at the, this process of enlargement towards Central and Eastern Europe, I go back to this book that a colleague of ours, Milada Vachudova from Chapel Hill, wrote in the 2000s called Europe Undivided, that looked into this, into this process of enlargement and the effects that it had on both Europe and the incoming countries or the candidate countries. And in that book, she, she hinted at this idea that um, albeit not by design, the EU foreign policy has turned EU enlargement into it, to its most powerful and, and successful tool. So this part, you know, albeit not by design, is important because we have to understand whether the success of EU enlargement was accidental or if it was actually a, a plan that, that was well, well developed and, and well implemented. And this makes a big difference going forward. 
So it's always a tricky question to ask whether success, whether EU enlargement was successful, because it matters how you define success. In many ways, the idea of having a blueprint that the European Union stuck to for 20 plus years that then turned out to be a, a, a success is not really what we're seeing in practice. On the contrary, we see that plans and reality seldom align. And so this is one of those you know, failing forward patterns that I've also worked on and published with another IWM fellow, Eric Jones, and colleague at, at Robert Schumann Center. And we can see that the EU's enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe was not a straight line from the fall of the Berlin Wall to EU 27. So this whole process, if you, we all remember, it started in Copenhagen in 93, with very clear and difficult to meet standards for for the incoming countries. And this was meant to see the the progress of enlargement very slowly, to build in greater safeguards to prevent these countries from joining before before they were ready. Right. So exactly to answer to this exuberance that you are mentioning. And then these rules of enlargement were further elaborated in the in Luxembourg in 97 and they were also measured and they involved only the most qualified candidates particularly on the economic front so again this seemed to show that there were more barriers to entry and the the process introduced in 99 in in Helsinki was quicker right and more inclusive yet it promised that both the EU and the candidates would be would be prepared so each of these agreements fell short of their stated objectives even the accession announcement in Copenhagen in in 2002 proved incomplete because Bulgaria and Romania as we all know were allowed to join subject to these exceptional temporary safeguards, right, which 20 years later looked permanent in in many ways, the cooperation and verification mechanisms. So tracing the EU's approach to enlargement from the perspective of what the EU powers that be had wanted shows that the European Union may have been complicit into this ambiguous evolution of these countries, right, from the beginning in overlooking the obligations of membership. So this idea of setting standards that then you have a double standard in applying has been following the, the enlargement process from the beginning. And we can still see that in 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 the process right now, the way that the European Commission the guidelines that the European Commission has set are being implemented when it comes to, to further enlargement, right? So the question is whether this the result is good enough just the way it is, even if it wasn't the plan from the beginning to enlarge in this way, right? It's accidental, but what does this mean from for Moldova, Ukraine, and the Western Balkans? Does it mean that they stand a chance to join the EU despite not meeting a lot of the criteria that the European Union itself has set? And that's possible because it's a political decision in the end. But on the other hand, the situation on the ground in these countries the European Union itself and the process of enlargement itself is not the same. So it would seem that the process of enlargement is pointing in different directions right now for the countries of, of the Western Balkans and the, the countries in the EU's neighborhood. Well, certainly the times have changed 
to, to make a banal statement and that the situations in the various countries have changed. And of course, now with Russia's invasion, the whole security architecture is completely different and the kind of peace that everyone thought would prevail in Europe or continue with the fall of the Berlin Wall has has been shattered. And and thus there's going back to the drawing board in in every instant and and segment of European policy uh, as we know it. You you have raised a number of questions and I I'd like to sort of tackle some of them. So maybe first of all the star enlargement pupils, quote-unquote, were Hungary and Poland. Mm -hmm. They were really heralded as, well, this is the way one should do it. A real commitment, of course, to, to EU enlargement, to democratic reform, to checks and balances, pluralism, independence of the media. And yet it is the star pupils who have failed to put it very simply, what do you see as someone who has been following this intensely from many aspects? What, what do you see the main reasons and what was overlooked? And thirdly, has the European Union been too slow to understand that something was going wrong and that it had to be tackled earlier on rather than later? So this is definitely a yes to your last question. I would struggle to find colleagues in either in the academia or in the policymaking world who wouldn't agree right now that the European Union was slow to react when it came to the challenges to the rule of law that we all saw taking place in Poland and in Hungary quite early on, with probably with Hungary being the at the forefront of of this of this challenge or democratic backsliding as as many colleagues would call it so yes there was there's definitely a, a a problem of reaction there and it's not only connected to the slow pace with which the european union is making decisions but it's also a matter of how it decides to use the mechanisms that it has or indeed integrate more mechanisms into one so that it can become successful in the end so what was the situation with Ukraine with in in the context of of Ukraine and Russia we can even see that these the attention to these countries and the problems with going forward in fact in Poland and Ukraine are not being um, at the center stage of the conversation anymore not to mention that there are other countries including Romania and Bulgaria whom I've also been following closely in, in the last decade, are also stagnating in important ways on all the usual metrics of democracy building that we follow. So it's not just uh, Poland and, you, and, and Hungary that are a problem, but there's, there are also other countries that are flying below the radar. <clears throat> and I hope we could rectify that, that issue in, in our conversations, because indeed, just like you said, Hungary and Poland were the star pupils. So when the star pupils disappoint, the attention is is greater and, and you're trying to understand why. I should just say that there are many reasons that we've identified to explain why Poland and Hungary have been seeing this democratic backsliding. And these connect both to the rise of populism, they're related to the economic situation of certain groups of people compared to, to other segments of society, the way that these countries are being integrated into the European Union, but 
also the quality of periphery that is being ascribed to them in different ways. But most importantly, it's the way that political elites have captured important parts of the economy and of the social engineering of the country, exacerbating attitudes that are not aligned with the idea of liberal democracy to which these countries have adhered to at the beginning of their European integration process. But I would propose actually to look again at the moment of transition for a wider understanding of why these countries look the way they did, the the way they do now, and what did they do at the beginning. So this idea of wishful thinking or what I call a democracy bubble, right? Their fundamentals did not necessarily align with with the idea of of democracy as we thought they would. So there is a a problem of how we measured their starting point as well. And we're trying to address this so that we know what was this misalignment between the formal rules that the countries adhere to, including the elites and the population, the economic system and so on, and the practice. Because in many of these interviews that you would have with elites, and you know this probably better than, than anyone, when you talk to political elites, what they say and their commitment to respecting the rules that they agree to is not exactly perfect, right? So they, they, they at times accept certain rules without having the intention to to respect them. And this is something that has constantly come out, but it's so stealth that we don't know how to code it. We don't know how to analyze it. The informality in, in politics and the indecision of political elites to actually absorb the rules is, is quite stark and it has important implications on how these countries have moved forward with their European integration as well. I may be self-referential for a second. This is exactly what Mary Caldor and I did in 96 when we did a paper on democratization in Central and Eastern Europe. This gap between the formal and the substantive in in democracy and identified that as, as a potential problem going ahead. But I think that one of the important things as we look at the, put simply, skepticism of the European Union to take in new members is exactly the fact that they say privately we do not want new Viktor Orbans in at the table in in Brussels and of course seeing certain authoritarian tendencies in candidate countries or problems with state capture you know they in, engage in in a formal process the famous we pretend to reform and the EU pretends to continue the enlargement So this pretense continues, but given the geopolitical situation, as I think you've said in in these papers that that you have, have prepared for publication or maybe already published, is the fact that, you know, the, the the political situation drives a lot of the urgency to actually do something about these things. I'm glad you mentioned Romania and Bulgaria because I think it's a very interesting case in point between the reality of geopolitics, I would say, and of a united Europe, and on the other hand, of democratic failings or lack of quicker and more substantive democratic reform. I always 
have said that, you know, if we were to imagine a European Union and NATO without Romania and Bulgaria being members, as Russia invaded, we would have a completely open door on the border of Ukraine for whatever, you know, scenarios that that Russia might want to engage in. So in my book, this was a very good geopolitical, geostrategic decision, but with all the problems that you have so rightly mentioned in, in your answer just a, a moment ago. And I think that's what we're really battling, and that's what the candidate countries are also having to having to look at. Clearly, one additional thing is that the European Union was very clear that no new Cypresses would be taken in. Or if we translate that, no country with a territorial unresolved issue, and of course I'm talking about my country, Serbia, that has an unresolved issue with, with Kosovo, will not be taken in. Now we have Ukraine and Moldova that have territorial issues. We won't go into the substance of that. And, and Georgia as a potential candidate has, has those issues. So the, the level of complexity here is, is very big. But what I'm leading to is a question about, in particular, the Western Balkans, where the European Union took its eye off the ball, to say it colloquially, that there would be no conflict. And after, you know, a decade ago, basically, the, the dynamic of enlargement continued, but with no real, you know, push to go towards membership. So my question is about the complacency of the EU. So let's let's put the the onus of responsibility a little bit in Russell's to not have understood that that would open the space and the playground for Russia and China. And of course, the EU woke up to that challenge even before the invasion, but even more so now afterwards. Let me call it a mistake that Macron and France did by stopping North Macedonia after the historic agreement that they made with Greece back in 2019. It's so important, because, and it also circles back to, do, to where we started this conversation. This complacency that the European Union has, has shown for so long in the case of, of the Western Balkans has important effects right now in the way the EU is using enlargement for to stabilize Moldova and Ukraine. And this is exactly because decision makers did not go back to the drawing board to realize what went well and what went wrong in their enlargement policy. We hail it as a success, right? It's without question that it's better for Romanians and Bulgarians to be inside European Union than outside. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But it's important to know how this success was achieved, right? So if you do not have the, the, the self-reflection to go back and see whether it was your initial plan that led to this success, or if it was a series of, of just either context-related influences, or if you just got lucky in many ways, then how are you going to know what part of your enlargement policy is going to function going forward? And this complacency that you so rightly pointed to is now working to in to destabilize the EU's role in the Western Balkans because it is lacking credibility. And that is a big problem. We keep 
using this buzzword word credibility and the EU is aware that it has lost its credibility because the word is also showing up in all sorts of documents related to the Western Balkans. But then they go and do the same thing in the case of Moldova and Ukraine. So this is, you know, the definition of madness, trying to do the same thing all over again, expecting different results. Your rhetoric didn't work in the Western Balkans. There is a, a significant problem with many of the countries that, just like you said, have increasingly opened their doors to Russia, but also to more illiberal attitudes in terms of social economic, on the socioeconomic dimensions. And then you think, okay, well, it didn't work here, but maybe it will work in Moldova and Ukraine and we could just promise membership, not adapt our strategy at all, not put any kind of new meat on this on on the on this broken promises the diplomacy type of strategy and expect different results. It's very unlikely that it's going to work. And together with other colleagues at the European University Institute, we're actually looking to get some data that we're hoping to then present to decision makers in the European Union to show them that the presence of past broken promises towards the Western Balkans actually influences the credibility of current enlargement promises towards the Eastern neighborhood. And maybe when we show them these the change of attitudes as a result of, of this continuous complacency strategy that they're using, maybe then they will finally consider rewriting some of these plans that, that they're putting forward. Well, I completely agree with you and, and thank you for the important work that you're doing in that regard. The, the, the future of Europe, to put it grandly, really hinges on this issue here because if Europe, meaning the European Union in this case, cannot integrate in one way or another the Western Balkans, let, let's start with, with that, but also then Ukraine and Moldova that have been given candidacy status, I do not see how its credibility on the world stage can be effective with, of course, still Europe is an economic giant, but it's a demographic dwarf. But exactly in this case, both in terms of the values that it stands for, democracy and human rights, open society, and the rule of law can be demonstrated here if we wish. But let me, let me move on to something that I think we are both very interested in. How do we help the credibility of Europe and how do we, I say we because I come from a candidate country that hopefully will join one day, how do we bridge this gap and how do we make it more realistic for these candidate countries to feel a part of Europe? And of course, you realize I'm alluding to the various policy suggestions that have been made about a phasing in strategy or a staged accession strategy that have been made by colleagues of ours who work in a number of institutes and think tanks. In my book, I, I call it very simply, bring us to the table, make us feel part of the discussion. To use that famous cliche, you know, if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, and they discuss about us rather than us having a voice. Once you have voice at that table, there is credibility. Let me just add that throughout the, this past year, 
in a number of conversations that I and many of us have had with the various presidencies, the French, the Czech, and the others, the people in the engine room have told us that they have been told to look at these various scenarios. So how do you see this? First of all, I want to confirm that there is indeed an interest in the European Union to look at these different scenarios. So that's another, perhaps not that transparent activity that is going on at the European Union. Give us some alternatives. This is is something that many of us have been working on, but you can also see that it permeates conversations in different conferences, meetings, and, and so on. There is an awareness, I would say, at the level of, at the higher levels or just say mid-management level of the European unions that candidate countries need to be involved and that there is a need to design a policy of, of enlargement in a meaningful way that can reward progress. So it can't just be that everything is connected to this full membership idea, which is why these these new proposals as the you know the phasing in approach for example is is quite relevant and it goes back exactly to what you are saying and what people have been saying for such a long time and maybe now there is finally an interest to also hear uh, what we're, we've been working on for so many years, candidate countries need to be involved in EU decision-making already through their accession negotiations, right? So this is the, the this phasing in, at least, approach, which is just a term borrowed from developmental studies that suggests that the functionalities of any new systems are introduced in in sequence, replacing old systems. And getting these countries in, in whatever shape or form, will already change what the European Union is. And and that's important for everyone to, to realize. And that just means a dense involvement of these candidate countries in the process of accession. And it's unavoidable for the EU to also achieve its security goals. So as you were saying, as long as you are a reluctant great power because you don't want to have this role. You don't perceive yourself as a a security provider because your security is provided by NATO and the greater American umbrella. Then you don't need to deal with this. But once you are aware that your security is threatened in, in such direct ways, then it is entirely unavoidable to, to, to increase the involvement of these countries in their accession negotiations. Well, I think that's a fine note to end this discussion. I believe, and I repeat, that the onus of democratic reform and fulfilling the requirements of enlargement is for the greatest part on the candidate countries. They need to show, and I think the good thing is that all of these countries strategically have decided to join the European Union, so there's no excuse, of course, for fulfilling the homework of the criteria and the Copenhagen criteria or however we call them, but also requires bold and courageous moves in the Brussels engine room of of the European Union and of the member states to, you know, step outside of their local politics because very much of the skepticism and kind of backdoor talk about are we sure that we want to enlarge to these countries and what problems will it create? I think it will need, and unfortunately, 
the Russian invasion has been one of the tiniest silver linings and has prompted the European Union and the candidate countries to think more clearly about not just being stable and avoiding reform. So, you know, we will clearly be watching all of this. And I look forward also to the results of your work and your colleagues as a Europe Futures Fellow. So thank you very much, Veronica. It was a real pleasure to have you and hope to see you very soon. Thank you very much, Ivan. See you very soon. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erste Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.